Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa <coughs> So good afternoon everyone I hope you've all had a productive first day of your retreat here so far. So, to begin with, I thought it would be good for us to first just give a brief overview of the Four Noble Truths as a whole, as well as their place in the Buddha's teaching, to kind of set the stage for the remainder of this retreat. We can properly say that the Four Noble Truths are the real core and the framework of the Buddha's teaching. What is meant by that is twofold. First off is what the Four Noble Truths are dealing with. That is Dukkha. All four of the Noble Truths deal and look into Dukkha, which is a word we'll translate and try and define later on. But we, of course, have the, these four. We have the truth of dukkha, the truth of the origin of dukkha, the truth of the cessation of dukkha, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. So dukkha is the main question, the main problem of the Dhamma. That is to say, the, the problem that the Dhamma um, looks into and tries to understand better so that we can eventually overcome it, remove it from our experience. In a very famous quote by the Buddha, he says that he only taught two things, in fact. That is dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. That's not to say that he only said those two words ever, but rather that all of his teachings were in some way, shape, or form connected with either of those two things, either understanding dukkha or leading onwards to the cessation of dukkha. That's why the Buddha's Dhamma, his teaching, one of the qualities of that is opanayaka, meaning leading onwards. The goal that the Buddha had when he taught individuals was to lead them forward towards Nibbana, or if not to that point, at least lead them in such a way that they could conduct themselves more wholesomely and live more peacefully and contentedly even in this life. So, Whenever he gave a sermon, which we have collected as the suttas, it was to a specific individual or a group of individuals, all of whom had different faculties, were at different places in their growth and development. But the uniting thread, the uniting factor, is that the goal of whatever teaching was to lead the listener onward to removing their suffering. And this is very important to keep, keep in mind whenever we read any of these suttas. They're not just in isolation. They were given to people who had their own views, perspectives, understandings, or lack thereof. And so in that way, they are, they are very pragmatic, a very practical teaching. The Buddha didn't set out to make some kind of abstract or analytical philosophical system, but rather, quite simply, just to get a person going get them leading to the end of suffering. 
This is why he also mentioned another famous simile. He was in a, a forest and he was with some bhikkhus and he took a handful of leaves from some of the trees in that forest and he asked the bhikkhus, what do you think bhikkhus? What is more, the, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in this forest? And the bhikkhus obviously said, the leaves in this forest are substantially greater. And the Buddha said, so too, that which I have taught you is like the um, leaves in my hand. That which I have known through my own direct knowledge, my own direct experience, is like the leaves of this forest. Now you may be thinking, well, the, the Buddha is short-selling us here. Look, he's just giving us this tiny little package. It's not really fair. I want to know about this and that and that and that, that, whatever. But the reason for that is because that it was only those things in that handful of leaves that were connected with the path, connected with the goal. And the goal, essentially, in brief, is encapsulated in the Four Noble Truths. That's our duty, that's our goal, that's our objective. Anything not connected to that, anything not connected to the holy life or the spiritual life or whatever you want to call it, he simply left it aside. The reason for this being that it's so very easy for us to get um, obsessed with these kinds of ideas, these, uh, ones, these ideas, these questions that don't necessarily have to do with moving forwards in the Dhamma. And suffice to say, if our minds are obsessed by those things, we may not have that same impetus to continue practicing and pursuing the goal that the Buddha set out. So this is a very important thing to also keep in mind that, you know, there are many questions that the Buddha just simply wouldn't answer because the question, the question is either wrongly asked or it's irrelevant or any number of different things. Now, what did I mean when I said that the Four Noble Truths encapsulate the entirety of our goal? One important thing to bear in mind about the Four Noble Truths is that they're um, perhaps more closely thought of as tasks. In fact, one author translates them as noble tasks, which I, I find interesting. It's not to say that they're also not true, but rather that um, in the Dhamma Chakabhavatana Sutta, that's the Buddha's first sermon where he expounds the Four Noble Truths, <clears throat> he gives the following descriptions of the Four Noble Truths. He says that the first truth, the noble truth of suffering, is to be understood. The second noble truth of the origin of suffering is to be abandoned. The third noble truth of the cessation of suffering is to be realized. The fourth noble truth of the cessation of, or the path leading to the cessation of dukkha is to be developed. And so rather than being passive, I don't know, facts in the world that you look up in an encyclopedia and, or you write a book about them and put them in your bookshelf to forget about them, each of the noble truths is an imperative. It's a task to be done. It's a, a call to action. Hence, we also have the description of the Dhamma as ehipasiko, calling one to come and see. We don't just study these Four Noble Truths for the sake of saying, I know the Four Noble Truths, let me tell you all about, about how much I know about Buddhism, or something like that. The Buddha encourages us to drink of these Four Noble Truths. That is to say, to understand them completely, to realize them, to abandon them, or whatever the imperative might be. And what's further, 
completing any one of these tasks automatically fulfills the rest of them. So, for example, if we understand the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering, implied in that statement is that we know the origin of suffering, we know the cessation of suffering, we know the path leading to the cessation of suffering. For otherwise, we could not rightfully say that we fully understand dukkha. That's why a Buddha or an Arahant, an enlightened being, is the one who fully understands dukkha because they've gone beyond dukkha, because they removed it. They know the entire mechanisms, the ins and outs of it. And the same thing goes, for example, with the, um, the second noble truth. If you've abandoned the origin of suffering, then you've clearly also fully understood suffering. Why? Because you've gotten rid of it. That's the, the point. That's the ultimate goal of what we're doing. And so likewise and so on with the um, third and fourth noble truths as well. Interestingly enough, also in the uh, one sutta, the Majjhima Nikaya, the Mahahatipadopama Sutta, that's the greater simile of the elephant's footprint, um, Sariputta relates the Four Noble Truths as encompassing the entirety of all wholesome things. What is meant by that is that anything which is wholesome is, in a way of speaking, defined by the extent to which it removes and attenuates dukkha. So, for example, understanding dukkha, thinking about knowledge, wisdom, that is wholesome. Abandoning the cause of dukkha, abandoning craving, that is a wholesome thing. Realizing the end of suffering, nibbana, that is wholesome. <clears throat> and then the entirety of the fourth noble truth is just this noble eightfold path, which even that in and of itself can be said to encapsulate all of what is wholesome because it has these three factors, sila, samadhi, panya, morality, concentration, wisdom. And so this reiterates the fact that the Four Noble Truths are so core and so central to the Buddha's teaching, so much so that they encapsulate anything we could call <clears throat> wholesome or skillful in any way at all. And what's further interestingly enough is that we also see that when we try and define the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, that is samaditi or right view, we see that that's defined in some cases as knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. So then within the Four Noble Truths, you have right view, which is knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. And so you have almost this layered kind of thing going on there, where right view is knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. Ignorance is non-knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. This is also you know, described in terms of Patechisamupada um, and other such things, but really, it all works out the same for reasons we will also go into. Now, what's also, the second part I mentioned is that first we mentioned that the Buddha's teaching was centered around dukkha. The second thing was that the, the Four Noble Truths provide us a framework for analyzing our experience. What do I mean by that? So when we have any, any resonant phenomena of any kind, there, there's four kinds of things we can look at. The existence of the phenomena, the origin of the phenomena, the cessation of the phenomena, and the path leading to the cessation of that phenomena. And so in suttas like the Samaditi Sutta, aptly named enough, we see this kind of framework applied, to example, for example, to the um, different parts of dependent origination. So, for example, ignorance or 
um, determinations, consciousness, name and form, so on and so forth. Each of these things is analyzed in this way. And the reason for this is that we're attempting to see, you know, the impermanence of all these things. That's really the crux of what's going on. And so the Four Noble Truths schema provides us a framework <clears throat> for understanding the impermanence of whatever it is we're applying. Obviously, the most central one and the one that, again, the Buddhist teaching is most concerned with is this dukkha. That's the, we could say, the, the overarching picture that the framework is applied to. Everything else is on a more particular level underneath that kind of uh, umbrella, so to say. And this is counter to the way that we typically analyze our experience. If you look in the second sutta of the Manjimindakaya, that's called the Sabhasava Sutta, or all the influxes or all the taints, the Buddha defines yonaso and ayonaso manasikara. Those words mean skillful or wise or unskillful or unwise attention. In fact, another way of translating that is the word yoni can be um, translated as womb. So you can think of yonaso manasikara as womb attention. That doesn't mean staring at a pregnant woman's belly, but rather looking at the origin of things. Where is their birthplace? How are they born? Looking at the conditions by which they come to be. And so aptly enough, skillful or right attention is defined in terms of analyzing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths in that schema once again. Ayonaso Manasikara, on the other hand, is described in various ways as um, looking at things in terms of self. What I mean by that is like taking, kind of uh, extrapolating or thinking about or um, pondering on the nature of the self in unskillful ways. So we do things like think about questions like, what was I in the past? How was I in the past? What was I in the future? How will I be in the future? What am I? Or we could even ask the question very simply, am I? And so on and so forth. But the problem with this is that it takes this self, <coughs> this I, uh, at its face value. It doesn't question that. Because we could say that that's really central to this question of dukkha, is the existence of this being or the phenomenon I, myself, that we have in our experience. If we don't question that, we can, we, can, we can question that in the same way. We can ask, there is this. What is the origin of my sense of self? What is the cessation of it? What is the path leading to the cessation of it? And what you'll find, as is expounded in the schema of the three marks of existence, that's impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, is that when you see things as not-self, meaning to say that you've seen how things are taken as self in the first place, you can overcome that. And that is another way of speaking about the end of suffering. And so this, again, Four Noble Truths schema can truly be applied to anything whatsoever. And in order for us to progress on the path, it must be applied in these ways. Otherwise, there's no way that we'll ever see the, the determinations that condition these things in our experience. And so when I was speaking in my guided meditation about the simile of two sticks holding to get each other together, that's essentially the principle that we're dealing with here. We have to see 
how both sticks work together, prop each other up in order to continue. And as we'll see later in the retreat, there are certain ones that prop up suffering, certain ones that prop up ignorance. And um, I think Bhante Jayasar will speak about those with the second and third noble truths tomorrow. But anyway, moving on, we've been using this word dukkha a lot. It's very important, obviously enough, to define this word very carefully. Now, it is translated in a variety of ways. Some that come to me at the top of my head are suffering, stress, unease, dis-ease, burden, difficult to bear, unsatisfactory. So you have a whole kind of gamut of words that seem somewhat related, but also have some slightly different connotations to them. And this becomes confusing because the word dukkha itself is used in different contexts. So in one sutta, <clears throat> the Buddha categorizes dukkha into three categories. The first is dukkha dukkha, the second is viparinama dukkha, and the third is sankara dukkha. So we can go through each of these to kind of gain an understanding of the word dukkha and also the context is being used within the Four Noble Truths. So dukkha dukkha is kind of a funny sounding word. You can you know, go around saying dukkha dukkha, dukkha dukkha, and so on like that. Um, but essentially means the suffering of pain. It's kind of the most simple um, kind of suffering that come, kind of comes to mind. <clears throat> it can refer to anything such as you know, bodily pain or mental pain. But overall, it refers to what we call dukkha vedana, which is painful feelings as opposed to pleasant feelings and neither painful nor pleasant feelings. So inevitably, this is the one that we're probably most familiar with. Everyone here has had a time in their lives, probably more likely many, many times, where they've had pain, bodily pain, mental pain, mental distress, and so on and so forth. Now, a key element of this kind of dukkha is that there is a certain degree of separation when it comes to bodily dukkha versus mental dukkha. Um, I think the separation can also be termed uh, the bodily pain is called dukkha. Again, more use of the word dukkha in different contexts to confuse us all. And this mental kind of pain can be called domanasa. This uh, dukkha dukkha is kind of referring to both, but we can separate them further. Now, we'll just use the English to make it a little easier for the moment. This bodily pain is inevitable. The Buddha even had bodily pain. There were times where his back ached, his knees ached, he was uh, sore, especially when he was getting older. But on the other hand, this domanasa, this mental pain, is something that's quite optional. We could say that it's the painfulness of pain. We can have pain in and of itself, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the pain is painful to us in terms of how our mind reacts to the pain. And so that's, a, that's one aspect of the enlightened being, that they may have a body still, and they may have pain in that body, because that's the nature of the body, but they don't have mental pain because of that bodily pain. A very famous simile compares this to two darts. A person may be shot with one dart, but they may or may not avoid the second dart. 
So, so long as we have bodily pain and we suffer and grieve and lament because of that bodily pain, it's as though we're being hit with a second dart. And that's obviously completely counterproductive and unnecessary. So this is a part, again, of understanding dukkha. Understanding what dukkha is inevitable so long as there is existence and what dukkha can be removed, what is gratuitous to existence. <clears throat> or even more generally, this dukkha, dukkha can refer also to the various kinds of mental pains, mental sadness, anger, all these kinds of unwholesome states, jealousy, greed, and so on. These things in and of themselves are dukkha vedana, painful feelings. Moving forward, we have viparinama dukkha, which refers to the suffering caused by change. <clears throat> I'm sure we've also had an experience of this. We generally long for this kind of stability and certainty in all aspects of our lives. You see people, it's, a, it's kind of the uh, a manifestation of this can be seen in choice paralysis. We want to know the outcomes of our choices before we make them. And so we get caught in this loop of not being able to choose anything because we're just stuck analyzing, thinking, you know, here's the ups and downs of choice one, here's the ups and downs of choice two. When in fact, no matter how much we analyze and think, and however certain we may think we are, there's never any real certainty that the outcomes of our actions are going to have the intended consequences. That's why they say that the road to hell is paid with good intentions. We can, we can act in the most wholesome way. That doesn't mean we're going to have the wholesome outcomes of that. And so this is all connected to this aspect of change. We, we long for this certainty and experience, and we don't get it. And when we don't get what we want, well, simply put, there's suffering. And another way of putting it, it's expectations. We have expectations of how things should be or what we want them to be. When those things are met, we suffer. But in fact, even when those things are met, we suffer. Because then we get what we want, and then we hold very tightly to what we want, but then what we want also changes. So there's really no, no, uh, no shelter from suffering so long as we're doing this, so long as we're um, craving permanence, craving certainty, craving stability. But now I'm intruding on other territory. Essentially, you know, this is the Buddha's teaching on anicca, or I should say more clearly that realizing the Buddha's teaching of anicca removes this kind of suffering. Because if we know absolutely that anything that we could possibly cling to is certainly impermanent, well, what room is there for any suffering? That's the root of all our suffering, trying to cling to impermanent things and trying to have them stay and not change. So this applies, of course, to anything you could possibly think of. Your friends and family will change, i.e. they will leave, or they'll get old, or you'll have fights with them, or they'll die, any of those kinds of things. Likewise, with material possessions, wealth, even, even your own faculties, your body, your sense bases will change. As you get older, the eyes, you know, they lose focus, your hearing gets worse. Even some aspects of the mind, they deteriorate. 
it's one of the, I think, scariest things, at least from my point of view, is the thought of like, you know, things like Alzheimer's and dementia, the idea of losing control even of your, your mind, being, you know, the, having the faculties degraded to such a degree. Anyways, good motivation to practice while you can, at the very least, right? <clears throat> the Alzheimer's runs in my family, so that's all the more impetus for me. It's almost inevitable, perhaps, but maybe meditation might help. We'll see. And then finally, we have this third kind of dukkha, which is perhaps the most complicated, difficult to explain. That's sankara dukkha, or we could call that the suffering due to conditions. Now, one thing I should mention is that, you know, we say the words suffering, stress, whatever, I'll use dukkha. And some degree, on some level, of course, we have experience with dukkha. Everyone does. But clearly enough, we don't fully understand dukkha. Otherwise, well, we'd be free of dukkha. And the reason for this is partly that we don't really know how quite deeply the rabbit hole goes, so to say. So the first two can be reasonably discerned, you know, by any typical person. That's not to say that they have a full understanding of them or that they know how to escape them. But if I told a random person on the street, you know, sometimes you suffer because things change or sometimes you suffer because there's pain in your body, they'll be like, yeah, yeah, that's true. But then you try going to tell that person, you know, there is suffering due to the inherent dependent nature of things, they're going to think you're a weirdo, right? (laughs) So this sankara dukkha is really, in some ways, the all-encompassing form of it, insofar as that any, for example, dukkha dukkha is also encompassed by this sankara dukkha, as well as this viparinama dukkha is encompassed by sankara dukkha. And this is the kind of dukkha that's referred to in the uh, three marks of existence, anicca, dukkha, anatta. So we have that things are impermanent, they're uncertain, and because of that, they're dukkha. Now, what this means is a bit different from what we might think of. For example, we think of, let's say, pleasant feelings. Those are called sukha vedna. Sukha is the opposite word of dukkha. Now, on a surface level, we'd say, well, sukha vedana, pleasant feelings, are not suffering because they're pleasant, right? But then there is a sutta where the Buddha says all feelings, pleasant, painful, neutral, are under are considered dukkha. And the reason for this is because of the impermanence of conditions. That is to say that all these different things, pleasant feelings, anything, is supported, again with the analogy of the two sticks, is determined, conditioned, supported by something else. Which means to say that it doesn't exist independently, which means to say it's not permanent, because if it's propped up by something else and that other thing is also impermanent, well then clearly enough the thing being propped up is also impermanent. But more specifically, this Sankara Dukkha is referring to the ideas of um, the suffering within being. Now, obviously, that's kind of a a grandiose term, the the grand suffering in being. But what I generally mean by that is that really the the core of our issues is that we we take the aspect of our experience as me, mine, myself. 
That's really the kind of fundamental clinging that we have. And so our suffering is, in a way of speaking, determined by that. So long as we take things as me, mine, myself, suddenly we have investment in them. Suddenly we have a great deal of care about them. It's one thing to say that, oh, that random rock is, you know, changing or going to change. And you're like, okay, whatever, who cares? But then you say your mother's dying and you're wailing, lamenting, running to the hospital. There's that difference. This is uh, very clearly in a given a, a clear simile. I think it's in the uh, simile of the snake sutta. Where the, oops, sorry, the mic's having some adjustment issues. <clears throat> where the Buddha says that, um, you know, you can think of, let's say, um, two scenarios. One scenario is that, you know, you're standing in a forest and you see there's a tree on fire. You see the tree on fire and, okay, well, that's kind of well, disturbing, but, you know, no big deal. I can just, you know, walk away, do whatever. It's fine. But then, let's say um, your hair is on fire or your clothes are on fire. Well, suddenly it's a completely different matter. You're very much affected by that. And the reason, fundamentally, is that, oh, my body is on fire. I am on fire now. Now it involves me. Whereas imagine if you just saw the body as it is, just as just this uh, you know, thing in the world. You didn't have any say in putting it there. You don't have any say in how it, what it does, mostly. You don't have any say in whether it continues to live or not, so on and so forth, and it's on fire. It's almost as, it's, for an enlightened being, it's almost the same thing as that tree being on fire. It's like, oh, well, that's nice, I guess, whatever. Now, of course, it doesn't mean they won't try and douse themselves. There may be other reasons. For example, they might want to be teaching people out of compassion. But the difference is that there's no suffering there when their body is on fire like that. And so this is giving allusions to this idea of the um, suffering due to conditions. It's really focused around being, focused around this I. And we'll get into more discussion on that as we go into the uh, definition with the first noble truth as well. So then <clears throat> we can talk about the first noble truth, which was the topic of this uh, talk before I spent half the time talking about other things. But I think it is important to set a groundwork for the remainder of the talks. Uh, another thing to bear in mind is that I'm going to use the word dukkha in place of any uh, English translation, mostly for the sake of as much clarity as possible. You know, all these different words have some different connotations, and then further to that, each person interprets those words differently. The word suffering might conjure up different things to me as opposed to you or you or you or you, whoever. In truth, Dukkha should be translated not as a word, but as an entire article, maybe even a book. So for the sake of understanding and clarity, we'll just keep using Dukkha, now that we've gone over some of its different contexts. And of course, it's also important to bear in mind that with regards to the Four Noble Truths, all these three kinds of Dukkha that we talked about are encompassed there, or just more generally, any Dukkha whatsoever can be addressed by understanding the Four Noble Truths, except, of course, the idea of having bodily pain so long as there's a body. But in terms of mental pain, it can be um, addressed. So the typical definition for the First Noble Truth goes like this. 
What bhikkhus is the truth of dukkha? Birth is dukkha. Old age is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Grief, sorrow, lamentation, pain, and despair are dukkha. Union with what is displeasing is dukkha. Disunion with what is pleasing is dukkha. In short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. And so the Buddha extols us to understand this statement, to understand dukkha in its various aspects in our experience. <clears throat> so we can give a brief overview of all of these different things. So the first one is birth is dukkha. Now, this one can be a bit jarring to some people. We talk about, especially in the, you know, the Judeo-Christian traditions, the preciousness of birth, the miracle of birth, and things like that. But the Buddha flatly says, birth is suffering. And people say, oh, well, the Buddha is just a pessimist. He's an emo kid or something like that. <laughs> but in fact, this shows something very profound in the Bhikkhuni Sangyutta of the Sangyutta Nikaya, there is a, um, an instance where the Bhikkhuni Chala is having an encounter with Mara. We can call him like the tempter or the evil one or however you want to call it in Buddhism. So Mara um, says this to Chala, who is an enlightened nun, by the way. Mara asks her, why don't you approve of birth? Once born, one enjoys pleasures of the senses. Who now has persuaded you of this bhikkhuni? Don't approve of birth. So the bhikkhuni Chala responds, <clears throat> For one who is born, there is death. Once born, one encounters sufferings, bondage, murder, and affliction. Hence, one should not approve of birth. The Buddha has taught the Dhamma, the transcendence of birth, for the abandoning of all suffering. He has settled me in the truth. As to those beings who fare midst form and those who abide in the formless, not having understood the cessation of birth, they come again to be continued being. So this is uh, quite clear. So long as we exist, we will inevitably encounter suffering, even in a way of speaking for the enlightened being, so long as their body continues to exist, the, the the question of the existence of enlightened beings is a bit more complicated, but anyway, leaving that aside, they even still have to deal with bodily pain, even though obviously their masters at dealing with it doesn't affect them anymore. Still, it's there until they you know, reach parinibbana, i.e. the breakup of the body of an enlightened being. So, so long as there is birth, there is old age, there is illness, there is death, there is, <coughs> there is generally dukkha. And this goes and spits in the face of the, um, we can call it the, the optimism of the Judeo-Christian kind of worldview, where, you know, life is a miracle, a God's gift, a creation of good by a creator. This is, you know, very easily toppled by asking questions about the problem of evil, essentially asking the questions, well, if God is, you know, compassionate and benevolent, why doesn't he, why does he make suffering in the world? And that is usually a pretty easy way to understand that maybe there wasn't any intelligent design behind it all. Maybe it was more akin to unintelligent design because God made dukkha. He made some mistakes here and there, I guess. Anyway, there, there's no actual like creator God in Buddhism. I'm just uh, making the analogy. Um, 
I do, I do apologize if you do believe in God. I didn't mean to offend you, but I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm glad this is on video. I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, anyway, where was I? Um, <clears throat> so anyway, so long as we are born, we have to encounter these things. Namely, we have to encounter aging, illness, and death. You know, so long as there is birth, dependent on birth, there must be death. How could you define death if you aren't born to die? Now, aging, illness, and death, these are very central things in Buddhist literature. In fact, there these, these three marks of existence, if we want to use those terms, that sent the Buddha away from his comfortable life in the palace towards a life of renunciation, towards a life of spiritual pursuit. Because he saw that no matter how many palaces he had, no matter how many wives he had, no matter how many sensual pleasures he had, nothing, none of those things could spare him from the inevitabilities of his aging, his, uh, his inevitable illness, and his inevitable death. And so when he reflected on these things, he is said to have done the following. When he reflected on the inevitability of aging, he lost his intoxication with youth. When he reflected on the inevitability of illness, he lost his intoxication with health. When he reflected on the inevitability of death, he lost his intoxication with life. By intoxication, we mean here the ideas of the permanence of these things. You know, for example, I can say this from personal experience because I'm a young person. It's, it's somewhat easy for me to slip into the ideas of, you know, I'm young, my body's healthy, it's good, I don't have to worry about all those things. But it's just plain and simple delusion. It's, it's intoxication with youth, thinking that the youth, as pleasant as it is, is going to last forever. Thinking that the, that the health, as pleasant as it is, is going to last forever. It gives whole new meanings to the word, the phrase, uh, drunk on life. We're drunk on life because we think it's going to last forever. And we think that we're immune to any kind of suffering. Of course, once the bad times roll in, we get sick, we lose a family member, we, you know, have an encounter with death ourselves. Suddenly that illusion's shattered very quickly. And if we haven't prepared for that, it's so easy to fall into all kinds of neuroses existential crises, despair, lamentation, and so on. You know, you look at people after they've had near-death encounters, and they're completely different people, hopefully. They live their lives in completely different ways because they've had a shock to their system. Hopefully, they are using this to, you know, move themselves forward and live life in a more productive, meaningful, wholesome way. But other times, it might be that they just become nervous wrecks, have, you know, extreme anxiety, anguish and angst over the inevitability of their death. And this is the dukkha in these things in a nutshell. It's not even the, at the um, moment of death itself. You know, I assume that, you know, you die and, well, then you don't, you know, you're not in this life anymore. But rather, the ideas of death that is with us right now, i.e. the thought of death, is really the source of the pain there. We think about our deaths and we have anxiety. The reason why being that we think, oh, 
if we refl- when we when we know that we will die, suddenly the ideas, the comfortable ideas of our lives that you know I will live forever, that I will continue to always be, I will always continue to be as I am, are slapped in the face. We can't can, we can't genuinely hold those views anymore when we face death. Now, there, of course, there are also two different ways of facing the inevitability of death. Obviously, we have no choice in the matter in truth. <clears throat> One side is to, you know, have a supreme amount of fear, anxiety, and worry about it, to let that fear consume us. The other is to reflect mindfully on death. That is to say, you know, I'm going to die, I'm going to become ill, I'm going to become old. It's inevitable. But there is a certain degree of choice in the matter. I can wallow in fear... Or I can use that as a motivation. If I reflect on the inevitability of my death, then suddenly the things worth doing, the meaningful things in my life become very clear. It's simple, quite, it's actually quite simple. You ask yourself the question, in the face of my inevitable, inevitable death, should I be doing this? Is this worth the time and effort I'm putting into it? And you, you keep that question in mind, you press that question to its limits, and you won't be doing those things that aren't worth doing. And what you'll find inevitably is that a great deal of things in the world are simply not going to contribute to having, being able to face death bravely, to being able to overcome death at all. It's in fact only the practice of the Dhamma, the practice of the various aspects of the Dhamma, that can really allow us to do this, or essentially in a way of speaking, allow us to overcome and and over and transcend suffering. <clears throat> so this is, I'm sure is familiar with everyone, but the key aspect of this is, you know, I can, you know, see hear about people on the news die and, you know, oh that's so sad, so on and so forth. But when we reflect on these things, it really has to be very personal. I am going to die. I'm going to become sick. Not that, you know, you're gonna do it, you're gonna do it, you're gonna do it, but I'll be fine or a random person in other country is going to have it happen to them, or whatever. It has to be very personal, very right here and now, thinking that, you know, even within the next breath, my life is uncertain. Uh, this fan could fall on my head and crush my skull or something like that. Who knows what will happen? <laughs> Wouldn't that be a romantic way to go? <laughs> so anyway... Moving on, we have uh, grief, sorrow, lamentation, pain, and despair. Now, these, of course, can come from a variety of different sources. Thinking about death, for example, can cause these things to happen. The loss of things can cause this to happen. So there's really not a whole lot to say about this other than the fact that these are some, the, often the grossest, manif- the grossest uh, mental manifestations of our dukkha. We can notice them very easily, and it's pertinent that we do recognize them when they're arisen. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair. We, we, we look at these things, we look at them mindfully, and we get an understanding of dukkha. Because we can, again, look at them in terms of the Four Noble Truths. There, let's say there's lamentation about something. There is lamentation, we can investigate. What is the cause of this lamentation? What is the cessation of it? And how would I practice to overcome lamentation? You can do this with anything arisen in your experience. Good, bad, wholesome, unwholesome, dukkha or not dukkha. <clears throat> then there's union with what is displeasing or disunion with what is pleasing. 
I think we touched upon this a fair amount, and it's a fairly straightforward thing to think about, though a bit more complex and difficult to overcome. Obviously, inevitably, in our existence, we're going to run into things we don't want to run into, and we're going to have things we like, and we're going to have to lose them. It's simply an inevitability. The issue comes because we're not prepared for these things. You know, if we prepared, if we thought about often and reflected on any of these things, aging, illness, death, union with what is displeasing, disunion with what is pleasing, then these things would happen and, you know, it would be unfortunate, but it would be so different. It would be like, well, of course that happened. What else could happen? There was no other possibility than this happening. And although this is an overcoming dukkha, it's making it so that we don't get overwhelmed by these things when they inevitably do occur. <clears throat> and that's, that's certainly a prerequisite for overcoming dukkha, being able to at least manage whatever arises. That's very important. But we'll get into how we overcome these things as we go throughout the rest of the retreat. And finally, and this is perhaps the most important one, is that in short... The five clinging aggregates are dukkha. The word for this is pancha upadana kanda, the five clinging aggregates. So the five aggregates are a very central thing in the Dhamma as well. We could call them the tools of our insight, in a way of speaking. Because when we have understanding, when we have knowledge arise, it's knowledge of these five aggregates. Now, these five aggregates are rupa, which is form or matter, vedana, which is feeling, sanya, which is perception, sankara, which means in this context intention, and vijnana, which is consciousness. Now, if we have time, we can go over these briefly because obviously knowing the tools you're working with is pretty important for actually using those tools. So it's very important for us to recognize the five aggregates, what they are in our experience and their place there. The reason that the five clinging aggregates are described as in short suffering is that because any experience we have is essentially an experience of the five aggregates. In this way of speaking, it's the, it's the um, <clears throat> subjective structure of our entire experience at any given level. So I have an experience of the world around me, and it generally has form. There's a feeling about it. There's perceptions. There's intentions in the world. And then all these things are presented to consciousness. They're cognized. So we can essentially boil down any particular experience into an experience of the five aggregates. Now, the reason these things are in short dukkha is not because of the five aggregates themselves. An enlightened being, for example, has just the panchakanda as long as their body remains. You know, they still, in a way of speaking, have consciousness, they still do things, they still have feelings. Um, but the difference is this clinging. The clinging is, well, this is getting into, again, the second noble truth, the, the cause of the suffering therein. I mentioned this before, but the fundamental form of this clinging is clinging to these things as mine, as me, as myself. And so what you find is that 
the difference that happens between someone who is on the path of the Dhamma and who is not on the path, who is not and who is on the path of the Dhamma, i.e., one who is a worldling, one who is a Arya, Savaka, a stream enter, or so on like that, is that they recognize and overcome what's called Sakaya Ditti. There's 20 kinds of Sakaya Ditti. We can translate that as a views of personality. There's a, let's say, for form, there's um, um, self is form, self is in form, form is in self, and self possesses form. You have four for each of the five aggregates, you get 20 kinds of personality views. And what this is essentially referring to is this clinging that I'm referring to. We cling to the five aggregates as me, mine, myself. And we start think, and we start kind of, uh, <clears throat> what's the word, um, rationalizing how it is. Like, oh, this feeling is mine. But then we could think further, well, myself is actually in the feeling. Or my feeling is in myself. It's encompassed in myself. Or myself simply possesses feeling. Or straight up we could say, I am feeling. Or something like that. And this is clinging for the reasons I went into with that simile of the, the tree on fire, if you want to call it that. We, see, we cling to these things of me, mine, myself, and within that kind of clinging, there's the assumption of permanence, of mastery, of control. This is uh, spoken about in the Buddha's uh, second discourse, the Anattalakana Sutta, the characteristic of not-self. He says something along the lines of bhikkhus, if uh, form, feeling, perception, intention, consciousness were self, then it would be possible to say, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. But since it's not possible to say that, these things are not to be taken as me, mine, myself. Whenever we take something as self, it's because we don't see the impermanence of it. And because we don't see the impermanence of it, we don't see the unsatisfactory of it and satisfactoriness of it. That is to say, we don't see the drawbacks and the dangers of clinging to those things. And hence, we delight in them. And from that delighting, we welcome them. We kind of build up this sense of self. We say, I am, and I have this feeling, and that feeling, and that feeling, and that feeling, and this perception, this perception, this intention, this intention. We kind of like, you know, grab them all together like a big magnet attracting everything in. You get this whole jumbled mess that we have to untangle. So... Another way we could look at this, for example, is uh, through this simile. Uh, the Buddha is speaking about how could there be agitation through clinging? Here, bhikkhus, the uninstructed worldling, who is not a seer of the noble ones, as skilled and disciplined in the Dhamma, who is not a seer of superior persons, so on and so forth, regards form as self, or self-possessing form, form as in self, or self as in form. Those are those uh, personality views I mentioned. That form of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, his consciousness becomes preoccupied with the changes of form. Agitation of mental states born of that preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is obsessed, he is frightened, distressed, anxious, and through clinging, he becomes agitated. So this is essentially you know, how these things are dukkha, because we cling to them again for this stability, and they change. But because we take them as mine, suddenly that's a very disturbing thing to us, because we get this kind of scary notion, I am changing, 
I am becoming otherwise. And that's a very frightening thing because, again, we had this notion of permanence that we have some core of our identity. And when all these things that we took as us start changing, suddenly that goes and becomes questionable. Questionable whether there was that core at all. Never mind the fact of questioning whether those things were mine in the first place. And so long as we cling to these things in this way, there is the opening for dukkha. And so it is by understanding these five clinging aggregates, that is to say, removing the clinging therein, that we free ourselves from suffering. The structure of experience stays, it continues, but the clinging and the notions, the conceit I am, are no longer there. We see them as they were. They were parasites on experience. We see them as gratuitous aspects of it, and in fact, harmful ones as well. You could think of it as like, um, <clears throat> here's kind of an oddball simile I just thought of. Let's say that you uh, have a tapeworm in your intestines. Everyone knows that it's a, a parasitic being. Um, but then an alien abducts you. <laughs> Bear with me, okay. <laughs> so the alien abducts you and does experiments and dissects you and whatever and sees this tapeworm in your intestine. The alien, because it's not familiar with human biology, might think, oh, well, this tapeworm is supposed to be here. I guess all humans have tapeworms. It doesn't recognize the fact that, oh, this is a parasite on this being. This shouldn't be here. It doesn't need to be here. And because it's here, the being is su- will come into suffering. And it's the same way with this kind of clinging, with the notions I am, with clinging to things as me, mine, myself. We don't even recognize that it's possible not to do that. It's not so simple as just choosing either. We can't just wake up one morning and say, I'm not going to take things as me today. It's not so simple. And that's why, it, that's why insight, understanding, knowledge is the key factor. And that's why the Buddha says that dukkha is to be understood. We understand the five aggregates. We understand that they don't have to be clung to. That in fact, there is a possibility of not doing that. And attaining that possibility is the overcoming of suffering. So to conclude, I want to refer to another sutta where the Buddha talks about the results of dukkha. He says there are two possible results of dukkha. The first one is bewilderment. We come in contact with some kind of pain, suffering, whatever, and we... um, the Buddha describes it as we rend our hair, beat our breast, cry, weep, lament. Basically, you know, we f- do things like fall into depression, fall into anxiety, um, become extremely worried and paranoid, all these kinds of things that they're just painful and they're also paralyzing. Because so long as one is caught up in these things, how are they going to overcome that very suffering that they're experiencing? There has to be a degree of, you know, separation from these things, or at least not so much of the emotional involvement that can typically come with them. The other result that he mentioned was search. One searches for an answer to the problem of existence, to the problem of suffering. There are then further two kinds of searches, which is uh, mentioned in the 26th Sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the Noble Search. The Buddha says there's the ignoble search, and the noble search. The ignoble search is searching for an escape from aging in things subject to aging, searching for an escape from illness in things subject to illness, 
searching for an escape from death in things subject to death, searching for an escape from sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair in things that are subject to sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair. We can think of this in terms of essentially distracting ourselves. We distract ourselves from the questions of existence, the questions of suffering, the questions of being, by getting caught up in the, um, you know, the shiny objects of the world, getting uh, caught up in essentially what the Buddha describes as sensual pleasures. And that's so easy to do because sensual pleasures, you know, they provide a very kind of quick fix, so to say. Not much effort's involved in attaining that pleasure and it's all that much more accessible in this day and age with all the conveniences we have. <clears throat> Whereas, you know, the joys and pleasure of meditation requires investment, it requires effort, it requires discipline, all these kinds of things. But of course, as with anything, let's say, for example, you know, you're, you know, trying to have a healthy diet. There's always the competition between I could have this cake and have a little bit of pleasure now and then suffer, you know, later all that much more for it. Or I could practice restraint, discipline myself, and you know, follow my, um, my diet, and then I'll you know, be healthy, I'll lose weight, I'll whatever goal we have. And so it's the same thing here. We don't want to get caught up in this ignoble search because it's simply not going to lead us to the end of suffering. The best that it can give us is a temporary distraction from these inevitabilities of life. Rather, we can search in a noble way, search for something that's beyond aging, beyond death, beyond illness, and most importantly, beyond suffering. And that is what we'll find in this Dhamma set forth by the Buddha in these Four Noble Truths. And so it's so wonderful that you've all come here for this retreat. It means that you have the wherewithal to attempt to conduct this noble search leading for an end of suffering. And so I wish you the best of luck in your continued efforts throughout this retreat and the rest of your practice, and thank you.